Our text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. 1 Peter 1, 16 through verse 21. The Apostle Peter writes, Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I ask that you would uh, just enlighten our eyes to your word, Father, that you would help us understand and that you would help our hearts want to uh, submit to your word and to what you have to say. God, I pray that you would help us see the beauty of this time that we're living in, the opportunity, Lord, and uh, to share the gospel, to submit to one another and glorify God through the way we love each other. God, I pray that these truths would just uh, be molded into our minds that when we wake up in the morning, we would understand our purpose. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to attempt to do something this morning that I, I don't know if I've ever done this. Um, I'm not a PowerPoint preacher, and I'm reminded why I'm not this week as I was preparing this. (laughs) So if you like it, don't urge me on because I'm not going to do it again, I don't think. (laughs) But it's uh, one time when I think, uh, sometimes when we're talking about something confusing, it's helpful to see uh, in the form of drawings even uh, how things fit together. The last three weeks, we've been talking about the second coming of Christ, uh, beginning with uh, the Transfiguration as we are working through Luke, which is a preview to Christ's second coming. It's the guarantee that it's going to come. Uh, and a reminder that the Scriptures have been fulfilled in Christ, and surely Christ will come uh, in glory. In a sense, we're working backwards. So Christ is coming. Then there's this age in the middle in which we live right now, the already but not yet, and then there's the time when Christ came into the world the first time. So the next two weeks, we're going to look at the first coming of Christ. Today, we're going to look at the here and right now. We're at this point in redemptive history, and we really are in the most confusing time. Uh, As you think about the story of uh, Joseph, you might say, well, that's that's like the greatest story in the Old Testament is this story of Joseph, how his brothers sell him into slavery and he ends up in prison. And through all these unlikely events, God has it that Joseph is in charge of of Egypt. He saves his family. And you get to the end of this thing and what God meant for evil 
are, are what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And we say, what a great story. But if you were Joseph in prison, let's say for the fourth year, right in the middle of the story, there's confusion. I don't think he said, what a great story <laughs> at that point in time. Well, part of what I'm telling you today is we're in the middle of the story. I don't understand everything perfectly clear. I don't see Christ face to face yet in all of his glory. But I think we can understand better the here and now as we zoom out because God tells us the beginning what happened before we were here. He tells us what Jesus did. He talks about our life now, and then he tells us the ending. So, uh, part of the reason I'm giving this sermon is because we're just working backwards. Second coming, the here and now, next couple weeks, the first coming. The second reason is this. When uh, we participated in the Lord's Supper last week, I probably said more clearly than I've said before that uh, the Lord's Supper is for those who've been baptized as believers. And this is the way I understand the Scripture. And for uh, those who are a member of a local church. And I realize that's probably uh, half of you don't fall into that category. Maybe you've never been baptized as a believer. Maybe you're not a member of a local church, and a lot of questions flow out of that. And my attempt this morning is going to be to help you understand why I think the Scripture teaches uh, and that these things, though they don't save you, they're also not optional uh, as we look at what God has revealed in the Scripture. So I realize... This morning, as I was sharing this with Laura last night, she's like, man, this is hard. I'm like, I know. It's kind of like rubber meets the road, but I didn't come up with this stuff. I'm going to try to show you I didn't come up with it. Jesus' message to you and I is actually hard. It's difficult. And I don't even know if it's as so confusing as it is as we like to think it's confusing so we don't have to deal with the reality of what Jesus says. So there's a good chance that many of you, this would have, to be honest with you, seven, eight years ago before we planted uh, Sovereign Grace and we had to think through all these things, I was confused on all these things. You hear things like church discipline. Well, that sounds scary. The Lord's Supper or communion, baptism church membership. Well, you ought to know that the Lord's Supper doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't save a person. Church membership doesn't save a person. And yet, just because that's true, I don't think they're optional. And while they may seem like these truths that we've all heard about that kind of float out here. We know Jesus said something about church discipline, and so did Paul. We know Jesus instituted baptism in the Lord's Supper. How do they fit together? Are these just truths along with a thousand other truths, or are these specific things that make perfect sense in the order of, of God? Someone might say, how do these things fit together? Can't I just stick with the gospel and love Jesus? This is so confusing. So that might be you this morning. I hope that by the end of this morning, uh, some of these things will become more clear and you'll see how they're tied uh, directly to the gospel. So here's how we're going to answer. Here's how we're going to get clarity. We're going to look at the whole narrative. We're going to Look at where we're, we are at in redemptive history. See, 
if we want the confusion to start to go away, we got to know where we are right now. At what place in time in God's saving purposes in the world. The second thing we're going to do might seem really basic, but we're going to re-examine the conditions Jesus put on those who are interested in following him. This would have been the sermon from three or four weeks ago, probably four weeks ago. And I think when we just do those two things, all of a sudden, these other things are going to start to uh, make more sense. And the third thing, we're going to look at the church. We'll see how Christ structured His church in accord with where we're at in redemptive history and with what's required to follow Christ in the gospel call. So that's the trajectory uh, we're going to go this morning. So let's look at the unfolding narrative. And this is going to be really simple and basic. One way to think about redemptive history is this. When Adam and Eve sinned, they rebelled against their God. They put the king's crown on themselves and said, I'm going to go my own way. And their minds became darkened to the things of God. And the whole world became a kingdom of darkness. Everyone born from Adam and Eve was born sinful, born not loving the things of God, uh, not even understanding the things of God to a, a great degree. But yet, way back then in the garden, God promised that there was going to be a rescuer that was going to rescue His people from the kingdom of darkness. And we know that that happened. Or the rescuer is Jesus Christ. He's the one that fulfills all these Old Testament prophets pointing forward to this coming one, this Messiah, who's going to come and deal with sin and bring in the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus Christ did that. The eternal Son of God took on flesh, became a man, and He was born to die on the cross to rescue us from this kingdom of darkness. And he promised to come again, come again and to set up his kingdom down here on earth and to create a new heavens and a new earth. So as we zoom out and look at the whole story, we realize you and I are living between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of of Christ. And as you can see in this drawing that I got to give credit to Scott for here, uh, all these little buildings are churches that one day you're not going to need all these because the kingdom is going to come when Christ returns. We will all be in the kingdom of God. There will be no need for local churches anymore when Christ returns. Uh, let me put some scripture under this narrative. 750 years before Jesus was ever born, the prophet Isaiah prophesied about this coming one who would bring light in the midst of darkness. Look at Isaiah 9.2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. He prophesied that there was going to be a great light that would shine in the darkness. A few verses later, we find out what that light it was, what it is, what he's prophesying to. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's amazing. This child that's going to be born is going to be called the Everlasting Father, Mighty God. What kind of child will this be? He's pointing forward to a God-man. 
of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The light is going to be a baby who is born of a virgin, who is going to be God himself. He's going to be a king. He's going to sit on the throne of David and his kingdom will never end. Later in Isaiah, Isaiah 42, 6, he speaks of this light. He says, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I'll take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison of uh, those who sit in darkness. So God's saying, from you, Israel, there's going to be one who opens the blind eyes of those who are in darkness, in this prison with no light. And then in verse 16, it says, I'll lead the blind in the way that they do not know and paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light. The rough places into level ground. These are the things I do and I do not forsake them. So God says, I'm going to do this. Here's how the New Testament speaks of our salvation in Christ. Paul says, Paul's praying and he's giving thanks to the Father. He, he's speaking this to the church at Colossae. He says, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You don't become good enough to be saved. God qualifies you to stand with the sons of light in the presence of God in all of His glory one day because of grace. He's qualified you in Christ. And here's what He says, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we see Christ here. Did we just disconnect? We have Christ who... Let me see what I can do on my end. Paul's language, the way he thinks of it is he thinks of it, he, he, he has this picture. <laughs> People in darkness living in this kingdom and Christ comes and he does this work where he actually transfers people over. All right, let's see how this goes now. Over there. All right, Satan, get out of here. And then uh, Ephesians 6, 12, we see this language. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. Now think, he's talking to Christians that are saved, but he's saying you live in present darkness because the kingdom of light hasn't come yet because Christ hasn't returned in full glory to get rid of evil in the world. He's done the decisive act on the cross and he's doing something right now in this present evil age. But he's saying, while you're here, you're fighting against powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places in chapter two what he says is he says there's three things that are against you the course of this world the prince of the power of the air that's the devil so the world system is darkness the devil is darkness 
And then the third thing is the passions of your own heart. From within, who's going to deliver you from all these things? Christ is. Well, how are we going to live in the present? How are we going to live before Christ comes? That's the question. Second Peter 1.19, right after he talks about how he saw the preview of the second coming on the mountain, he says, we have the prophetic word, that's the word of God, more fully confirmed. The Old Testament spoke of Christ's glory. Jesus came, died on the cross. He saw the preview of his second coming glory. To which you'll do well to pay attention, get this, as a lamp shining in a dark place. That's where you live right now, in a dark place. And he just said, pay attention to the Bible. It's a lamp shining in a dark place as it reveals Jesus Christ to be the Messiah, to be the Savior, the one who forgives sins. And then notice it says, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Peter wants you to know what time it is. You're in a dark place now but it's not going to be that way forever. The morning star is going to rise in your heart, meaning when Jesus comes in all of His glory, His brightness is going to make your heart bright. You won't sin anymore. Right now, that's not true. You're in a battle right now, fighting against the darkness of your own heart, putting to death the deeds of darkness in the flesh. But we're fighting now knowing that the morning star is going to arise. And it's going to arise in the, our own hearts. This is how John thought about it. Look at 1 John 2.8. At the same time, he says, I'm, I'm going to tell you a new commandment, or an old commandment. He says, at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in Christ and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So the light has already begun to shine in Christ. Christ's love has been poured into their hearts. And this love that is burning in the hearts of believers in the church is shining in a dark place. And it's going to get brighter and brighter when Christ returns. That's what we're waiting for. Here's how Paul says it to the Romans. He says, besides this, you know the time. You know what time it is, right? that the hour has come for you to awake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Isn't that a true statement? Every day it's closer to the second coming of Christ or to your going to Him in death. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So we're given weapons with the word of God. This is Ephesians 6, right? The armor of God. The light's already starting to shine. Let us wake up. Let's not live like we used to live. That's what he says in verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, because the true believer realizes that his greatest enemy is the sin in his own heart. And that's what brought destruction and death in his life. And every day we're closer to the day where we won't sin again. And if that's where our hope is, let's not go back and live the way we used to live. That's what he's saying. So, we got a quick look at the narrative our lives live in the already and not yet. There's already a lamp burning. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we're waiting for Him to come. Now let's look at the gospel call. This is what I think we've heard a thousand times, but maybe don't take serious. 
Back in Luke 9.22, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If, here's the conditions to following Jesus, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, that's one thing, take up his cross, daily, that's another thing, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This little picture here, you have a humanity, the two guys on the left have crowns. This is what it means to be born sinful. You think you're God when you're born. (laughs) You're born and you say, I'm going to follow my own way. I don't want to follow God's way. We take the authority on ourselves. I'm going to live for myself. That's what it means to sin, to rebel against God, not to live for his glory, but our glory. We're king. And Jesus says, I'm going to a cross. I'm going to go be persecuted. I'm going to be rejected and I'm going to die and then I'm going to be glorified. And he says, by the way, if you want to follow me, that thing on your head, you need to throw it to the ground. To follow Jesus Christ means to submit to him as Lord. Has anyone ever asked you, is Jesus Christ Lord of your life? And you just say, well, yeah, he is. Well, do you realize the implications? He's saying... Get off your throne. Die to yourself daily, which means you're going to wake up wanting to put the crown on and live your life for you and not for Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but he said, if you're going to follow me, what faith looks like is you lose all hope in yourself. You want to kill the old man and become more like Christ. It's all about submission. Jesus dying on the cross was all about submission. That's a dirty word, isn't it? You know, it's funny. If I was going to say I'm going to preach on pride and humility, everyone would be fine with that. But if I say I'm going to preach on submission, ugh, it's like a word nobody likes, and yet Christ went to the cross, not my will, your will be done. I submit to the Father in everything, he says. And he says, if you want to follow me, you've got to be on the same path as me. Submit your life to God. Which means... No submission, no following Christ. The scary thing is the guy on the far left can say, I love sermons by Jesus. I love going to the church. I believe everything Jesus taught except this one thing. I don't want to submit to anyone else. I don't want to submit to God. I want the authority because then I can manipulate my life for my own selfish gain, for my own glories, basically. Churches are full of people who believe the right things, yet have never taken serious Jesus saying, you cannot follow me unless you understand submission. See, If you keep your crown, you're going to end up in death. If you lose your life, you're going to end up, yes, with a cross, yes, with suffering, but you're going to end up in glory. Here's the, here's the crazy thing. The guy says, okay, I believe you, Jesus. I take up my cross. I'm going to follow you. Whatever you say, I'm going to do. Wait a minute. Where are you going? I'm submitting to you. You're my king. And you're taking off? You're going up? You're ascending 
into heaven? I thought, it, I thought you wanted me to follow you, and I thought I got on the submission train to you as my king, but you're gone. You go up. What does Jesus say? John 14, 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He told his disciples he was going. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may all you may be also. So he talked about this in-between time. When I'm gone, but I haven't forgot about you. All right, we got to do the thing again. Jesus said, is telling his bride, he says, you're my bride. I love you. I'm going. But I'm coming again. And when I'm gone, I haven't forgot about you. I'm thinking about you. Romans tells us he intercedes for us constantly. He never doesn't have his bride on his mind. He's coming again for his bride. All right, let's see if we're back up. All right, we're handling the waves pretty good. We back up? Okay, so listen to what Jesus tells his disciples in John 16, 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he'll speak, and he'll declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus says, yes, I'm going up, but here's the deal. He's gonna, I'm going to keep talking to you through the Holy Spirit that I give to you. How does he do that? The Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles that Jesus chose, right? And that's where we get 1 Timothy, where you start to see the structure of the church laid out. How are we to live in this in-between time? Well, Jesus is telling us through the Holy Spirit, through the apostles that are writing the New Testament, and then the Holy Spirit gifts the church. He gives them shepherds, evangelists, uh, servants, equips the whole body. Jesus didn't check out when he went up, but he told us how to submit to him as Lord while we're down here. He gave the church the gospel, the word of God. That's who he left the gospel with. Where Jesus' word is, is where his authority is. A church is only authoritative if they're faithful to the word of God. It's not Christ's church where God's word is not. And so in all these little local places, God through the Holy Spirit, left his church. John 14, 25, These things I have spoken to you while I am with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, from whom my Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to re your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus says not only is he going to teach you more of what I want to tell you, he's also going to remind you of everything you can't remember right now. Isn't that amazing? This one is humbling for me. Acts 20, 28, as Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders, he says, Be ca pay careful attention to yourself, yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That means elders or pastors to care, not for your church, but for God's church, for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So the Holy Spirit picks elders and shepherds and puts them as shepherds to take care of the flock of God, God's flock. It's his. It was purchased by Christ's blood. How does the Holy Spirit choose elders? 
You know, I didn't start glowing one day. The Holy Spirit spoke through Paul as he wrote to Timothy and gave the qualifications to elders and through other uh, places that speak of the qualifications in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit filled believers look at the Word of God and say, what is a qualified man of God to have this position? They look at the Word of God and they recognize who God has chosen to be a shepherd. Now, here's where it gets scary. Because actually the Bible says, submit to your elders. Your elders aren't perfect. What's the difference in authority in the kingdom of God rather than the world? Jesus said, the Gentiles take their authority and they lord it over people. It shall not be so among you. He who's going to be the greatest, he who's going to shepherd needs to be an example to the flock. Needs to lead by serving. Then what is he? He washes their feet. He says, this is how you lead. So, any shepherd, any pastor that becomes proud, takes that authority, starts lording it over people, starts bringing glory to himself, Sovereign Grace Church ought to disqualify to be a shepherd of the church of Christ. And so, God's word rules over his church. So, these little buildings aren't random. They're given the word of God. They're true churches as they're faithful to the word of God. And let's zoom in at one of these churches. Look at Scott's drawing here. How do you, how do you submit to Christ? You want to follow Jesus? Here's what it looks like. Here's, what, here's the rubber meets the road. Trust in him by faith and be publicly marked off through baptism. Your baptism is an illustration of saying, I want to die to myself. His death is my death. His resurrection's my resurrection. I'm publicly saying, I want to fight my sin and be conformed into the image of Christ. And at a person's baptism, a visible illustration is being put on display of an invisible work that happens in the sinner's heart when they trust in Jesus and Christ pays for their sin and just as Christ was raised from the dead the guarantee of their resurrection also uh, is there a lot of Baptists get uncomfortable with 1 Peter 3 18 through 22 because we all know baptism doesn't save you you're saved by faith but look at how Peter cannot conceptualize separating baptism from faith. He says, For Christ suffered also once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. If you don't know what happened on the cross, here's what happened. You're not righteous. He was. He was perfect. He went on the cross and died a substitutionary death, meaning He took your sins, paid the wrath of God for your sins, so that you can gain his righteousness. And he did it that he might bring us to God. We can't live in the presence of God in heaven without our sins being taken away, without being perfectly righteous, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then a few verses later, verse 21, he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. What? Here's a verse that says baptism saves you. Well, read on. Not as, as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's what Peter's saying. You don't get dunked in the water and get saved because somehow that washes your sins away. He says, no, your baptism 
is an act of faith because you're putting your hope in Christ, his death and resurrection in your place. It's an appeal to God. How can I have a clear conscience, God? Because your son died on the cross and was raised again. What's the point? The point is this. If you're trusting Christ, Peter expects you to get baptized then. As the first step in showing, I want to submit to Jesus Christ. It's the way, uh, if you want to become a member of Sovereign Grace Church, the first thing we're going to say to you is, have you been baptized as a believer? And the reason why is because we believe that this is what Jesus has set up as entrance into the local church in the already and not yet time. Once you're in the church, what do you do? Uh, all right, so hopefully we're going to start reordering these and they'll make sense. When we're in the church, what are we going to do? Here's Jesus instituting baptism. We really don't have time to look at all this, but he commanded us to go make disciples of all nations and you baptize them. Who? The disciples that have just believed. Uh, then he institutes the Lord's Supper. Here's what Paul says. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. You see how this is the Lord's Supper and not Paul's Supper? You see how God through Christ is organizing the church and already and not yet, and not man? This is a man's idea. And so he institutes the Lord's Supper and he says to do this, as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he goes on, if you read this whole chapter, what does he say? You can't come to this table if you're not repenting of your sins and submitting to one another in love. He's saying if you come to the table not submissive to Christ in that you don't care about your sin, you don't care how you treat people, when you come together to eat, you eat judgment on yourself. You're not coming together for your good. You're coming together and some of you are even getting sick and dying because of the way the Corinthian church was saying, I follow Christ, but I don't want to submit to him in submitting to my brothers, repenting of my own selfishness and sin. So while we're in this body, we commit to love each other, to forgive each other. How is a person exit the church? This is something we would hope would never happen, but we see that uh, Jesus Institute, what sounds negative, but it's actually a positive thing. Uh, it's all about gaining a brother, not letting a brother walk away from Christ. Uh, there's uh, a time when a person is asked to exit the church, and when is that? It's when after the church in love has pleaded with them to turn from their sin. Let's say a guy's going to have an affair on his wife, and he says, no, I'm going to do it. I don't care what all of you say. I'm, I'm still saved. I'm still trusting in Christ, but I'm going to do it. We remind them of what Jesus said. If you want to follow me, you need to take up your cross. You need to listen to my words. The church in love is sharing Christ's words with each other. And so the only way a person is that a person's membership is ever pulled in a church is when they're unwilling to submit to Christ's word. This isn't a witch hunt where you're looking because all of us are sinning. All of us are struggling with sin. It's when a person says, I don't care anymore. I'm hardening my heart. I think I can do this thing this other way. So, um, these are just verses uh, speaking about uh, church discipline. Um, so here's really where the rubber meets the road. Our rubber meets the road in our submission to Christ as Lord as we submit to each other in the church. 
You see, it really doesn't make much sense to say, Jesus and I have this thing going, but I'm not interested in the local church because the local church wasn't man's idea. The local church isn't anything apart from the word of Christ. You should stop listening to me as soon as I stop telling you true things that the Bible says in God's word. You see, you can't stiff arm the local church and say, I'm going to submit to Christ. It causes, you know, the the disciples were there had to decide, am I going to walk into Jerusalem and die with Jesus potentially? Or am I going to walk away? Well, when Jesus ascended into heaven, we still have the exact same decision. We have a choice to say, what has he left here? He ascended into heaven. We still are either going to step in and say, Lord, I want to submit to you as I submit to my brothers in Christ as we submit to the word. Or we say, you know, I think I can follow Christ without doing it the way he's laid out. Uh, this is where my wife says, this is heavy and this is hard. And I said, yeah, but is, was, wasn't it hard when Jesus said, take up your cross, deny yourself daily? <sighs> Nobody naturally likes to submit to anything. And Christ says, if you want to follow me, Die to yourself. Follow me. So, can this be reordered? Can we understand it better? Hopefully, baptism makes sense in light of the gospel. What Jesus said about the gospel call. Hopefully, the Lord's Supper makes sense in light of where we're at. One day we're going to eat the marriage supper of the Lamb. But right now we eat this one in a local church together. I'm telling you, the safest place in the world to be as a believer who's trying to endure to the end by faith is as a member of a local church. So here's what I know. There's 66 people here that have signed their name to say, Sam, if you start to walk away from Christ, in love we'll plead with you. To not do it. To turn from your sin, receive forgiveness in Christ. I don't trust myself. And I take comfort in the fact that 66 of you have committed to me to say, I got your back. I'm going to love you when it's the hard conversation or when it's just encouraging. But The family of God, we're in a dark place. We're in a hard place. But we're given the gospel. (laughs) The churches have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't fool yourselves. It's blacker than you think out there. If people were honest about their lives and what they're struggling with, And what I see on a week-to-week basis with counseling, with families that you would never guess, everything looks good from the outside, I'm telling you, there's only one hope in this world, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's handed it to us. He's handed it to us. There's no other hope for Aberdeen than for local churches to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and show them the light that's shining in a dark place. And here's the good news though. Revelation 22. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gate. The way you get your robe washed is trusting in Jesus Christ. (laughs) He'll give you his perfect righteousness, a perfect white robe. Outside, 
are dogs, sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and the murderers and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. The Holy Spirit says to everyone here, come receive salvation in Jesus Christ. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take water of life without price. You can't earn your salvation. It's a total gift from God. God says, I'll forgive you of your sins. If you'll submit to me and put all your hope in me. If you see me as Lord, want to submit your life to him as Lord. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, there's nothing fluffy about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's such offensive love. Ah, God, I pray that if there's any of us a heart that hates submission that has kept them from entering into a local church. God, I pray that you would break down those walls. God, I pray that you would give them uh, the humility to step into a group that's full of sinners, full of the need to forgive each other because we offend each other. But Lord, I pray the love that Christ had for us would be poured into our hearts, that we would grow and become more like Christ. We'd become less selfish. We'd be conformed into the image of Christ. We'd be built up to maturity in the body of Christ as we wait for you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.